Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. This is a podcast by clinical psychologists for clinical psychologists. It will introduce you to experts in a wide range of fields relevant to the practice of clinical psychology, and I hope you'll find it engaging and informative. Associate Professor Chris Lee works in private practice and has an adjunct appointment at the University of Western Australia. He has extensive training from leading figures in DBT, EMDR and schema-focused therapy. He is a certified trainer by both the EMDR International Association and the International Society of Schema Therapists. He conducts therapist training workshops on personality disorders and trauma treatments throughout Australia and overseas. He has published research on personality disorders and PTSD. He is currently a principal investigator in two international multi-centred randomised controlled trials, one in treating complex PTSD and the other borderline personality disorder. It's my pleasure today to welcome Associate Professor Chris Lee to speak with us about trauma. I've known Chris a long time. He is a terrific colleague and a true leader in the field. He exemplifies the model of scientist practitioner and is a great contributor to the profession in broad and deep terms. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for making time to speak with us today. A pleasure. How did you come to focus on the treatment of trauma in your practice? I think um, I was more interested in the treatment of borderline personality disorder than the treatment of trauma per se. But um, as I worked with this client uh, group, I did become interested in the pervasive um, examples of trauma in the histories of people presenting with borderline personality disorder. So the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, and the verbal abuse. So that sparked an, an interest. So it was that sense of the more the more childhood trauma. Was that the thing that you noticed in your clients with BPD? Definitely, yes, yes, and kind of an and initially, I trained in prolonged exposure as an approach to dealing with PTSD. So I'd be doing other things in treating the borderline personality disorder, and then at some stage, try and look at do the trauma focused approach, and certainly get some success, but a little bit dissatisfied with. Uh, overall the results that I was achieving. So that was leading to a dissatisfaction. And so what did you do with that dissatisfaction? Well, one of the things that uh, that happened is that I got a phone call uh, out of the blue from a uh, a man who's, who identified himself as Don Heggie. And he rang me and he said, look, there are two things you need to know about me. Uh, the first thing is that I am uh, was a World War II bomber pilot and my plane was shut down over Germany. My entire crew was killed, and I spent the rest of the war in a prisoner of war camp in Germany, which for a bomber pilot is never going to be a good thing because the Allies had an approach of bombing civilian populations during World War II. And he said he had nightmares and PTSD experience, uh, uh, symptoms ever since that time, up until about a year earlier when he um, flew himself over to America to have a treatment with Francine Shapiro and try EMDR, and he reported to me that he had not had a single nightmare since that treatment, and that his goal was to make sure that other veterans of conflicts could have access to the treatment that, that he had. So the second thing he said that I needed to know was that he was rich, 
and that he was prepared to fly me and uh, and a psychologist from each state of Australia over to the US. He would pay for our EMDR course and our accommodation and our, our expenses, uh, airfares, etc. Just simply promising that when we came back to Australia, we would tell other people about what we felt about this treatment. So, Lisa, that's one of those decisions that takes about a microsecond to kind of say, yeah, I'll have a go at that. So um, oh, the other thing I did ask him, um, so how did you get my name then? And he said, well, I, um, I contacted the Australian Psychological Society and asked for the best psychologist in Perth, and uh, they uh, told him, and that person was actually busy and couldn't go, so uh, then I got recommended. That person was busy. I don't know what that person could have been busy doing and, and probably kicking themselves ever since that they didn't take up that wonderful opportunity. That's an amazing story, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's really, you know, Don did a lot of good things to try and help veterans. Okay, he's a very charitable person, has a, had an order of Australia for other charitable works prior to this. And it was really a no-strings-attached deal. You go over there, you see what you think, come back. And, I, uh, you know, the um, institutes that I visited there, the veteran hospitals, getting the training, I was quite impressed with the method, came back, tried it with my clients, and I thought this adds something and functions quite a lot differently to prolonged exposure. So that began um, a bit more of a research interest in looking at EMDR and prolonged exposure and how trauma treatments might work. Talking about that, how then you've got this prolonged exposure experience, you're vaguely dissatisfied with what were the kind of dissatisfactions that you had with prolonged exposure? Um, sometimes I found it quite difficult to get the person engaged with the uh, a task. So I think that's the clinical skill is helping them to, to stay with the level of arousal that they actually need typically to habituate um, to either the memories or the in vivo thing that we are, are doing. And it was a distressing uh, experience for them. You know, it, um, one of the things I think that as a clinician motivated me to keep going is many people improved, which was great, but it wasn't, the, the sessions weren't particularly pleasant by, by any means for them or, or for me. Plus, I felt that there was quite a bit of vicarious traumatization because prolonged exposure often requires that the person talks about their experience in the first person and the present tense. And that means as a therapist, you're exposed to a lot of detail that you mightn't otherwise necessarily need to know about. Absolutely. I'd have to agree with you. Uh, the distress for the patients, the vicarious trauma, there's a big vault in there that many of us have, you know, for a lot of those traumas that we've had to put away, yeah. you know, in place. Um, and then there's a lot of dropouts. And as a result, you know, in uh, research trials and so forth, uh, because of that, various those actual things. So I can see how that would be uh, a concern, even though it was successful, there would be concern for you in um, administering that therapy. So what did you learn, you know, in EMDR that you thought might be better, dare I say, for your uh, clients? Yeah, one of the things that um, that attracted me to the method is this: is the dual task nature that you're doing another task at the same time as you focus on their trauma experience, and the second task seems to decrease the amount of distress that the participants feel uh, uh, during the session. So it's not as uh, as painful. The second thing that I was very interested in, because originally I had some psychodynamic training as part of my master's. And I was really interested in the free association part of the uh, uh, 
trauma treatment when you do EMDR. So as, you know, putting on a prolonged exposure hat, if somebody uh, ever deviated from talking about the trauma experience that we were trying to treat, then the therapist's job is to pull the person back to that key uh, uh, memory. Whereas with EMDR, you uh, encourage and facilitate the person to make associations to the trauma experience. So be that uh, cognitions, be that other experiences not part of the original traumatic scene that may need to be processed. So, you know, Shapiro once described EMDR as a free association aided by eye movements. So I kind of found that really interesting because it was quite different to, uh, to the other approach. I remember uh, when Shapiro was in uh, Queensland somewhere, the, maybe Jupiter's. Were you there for that um, 1993? No, I wasn't. No, you weren't there. Yeah. Well, there were people hanging off the rafters for that training. Um, but and even though it was amazing, I, I, I remember there was some scepticism in the scientific community, well, Australia anyway, yeah. um, about what this new thing was, this eye movement thing uh, was. I know things have changed a lot since then, but what, what's your take on how that's progressed that view of EMDR has altered over time. Yeah, it has altered, um, and but it's been very slow and maybe not always in keeping track with the research. So occasionally I've still, you know, been presented at, at conferences and talked about, like, case studies, and, that, and people have occasionally stood up in the audience and just said, but where is, is the evidence base? So it is kind of curious that even when the evidence base is well established, that there's still a perception that it's somehow lacking. So the, the evidence base for the efficacy of the procedure is very well established. So I guess in 2013, the World Health Organization's um, scientific committee looking at effective PTSD treatments declared that uh, EMDR met the highest uh, levels. Uh, so I think that was a bit of a, an acknowledgement point. You know, the International Society of Traumatic Stress Studies has a, in the in the top uh, uh, category as well. Uh, but the recent NICE guidelines were still a little bit equivocal on certain areas, such as using EMDR uh, if you're uh, treating a child in certain other contexts as well. Does that reflect the research? Um, uh, not always, because looking at the same areas, the International Society of Traumatic Stress Studies uh, came to different conclusions. So something else might be going on there. And the interesting thing is that um, with the NICE uh, uh, guidelines. They actually did a cost-effectiveness one. And although in the main report they don't talk about the cost-effectiveness uh, showing that EMDR was superior to other trauma uh, treatments, it is nevertheless um, the conclusion in a subsequent um, um, paper. So, yeah, I don't know. It's still, it's still a little tricky. It's a little tricky and sometimes it seems to me that politics plays a part in these kind of decisions in all kinds of ways. There's science and, there, and, and there's human beings involved in science and, and that influences you know, people's perceptions, people's judgments about kind of like the evidence uh, are going to be tainted, at least influenced by their prior experience. Absolutely. I want to come back to, to various trauma-focused uh, treatments in a little while, but I wonder whether we could, I could ask you about um, your thoughts about the dose argument. You know, sometimes... I might see a client and I just think, is this person just so damaged? Have there just been so many traumatic episodes? I'm thinking particularly of a police officer I treated. And is it possible some people are just so overloaded that they can't recover? 
Uh huh. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's an interesting idea, and I've certainly had a similar clinical experience with uh, some people, and you wonder if that uh, has occurred. And yet, in the IRM uh, trial that that we did, where we treated people with chronic trauma, so many of them beginning in childhood, and in that study, some people would talk about they were sexually abused every day from the age of seven, you know, to uh, uh, um, 11, so four years of it. So, you know, when the research assistant is interviewing them, they say, so you're saying, you know, four times three, and so over 1,200 incidents of sexual abuse. And the person said, absolutely, you know, very definitely it happened every night during that period. And yet that person was shown to recover in, in the trial. And at, the, at a brief look at our, our data, which I, I do need to dive back into, the number of abuse experiences did not predict outcome at all. So I don't know, Lisa. I have mixed ideas. What are your thoughts then about the adequacy or otherwise of uh, our current diagnostic systems? Oh, yes. In the, in the area particular, you know, of trauma. So with, um, I think PTSD is, is getting pretty close to something that I would be satisfied with. I noticed that um, both the NICE and International Society of Traumatic Stress Guidelines both share a view that, that maybe the duration since the event might need a little tweaking. So they have separate categories of looking for the evidence between one month and three months and post three months. It might be um, in some ways that trauma is different. Um, after that time. Originally, the one-month cutoff was a bit, bit of an arbitrary thing, and I, but I do think you need different approaches between that one and three months and after uh, uh, three months, and I think trauma is experienced by the individual differently within that time. So I think there's a bit of way to go to still understand that. So just going back to EMDR for a moment, post three months, the trauma has um, seems to be stored in the brain such that it's quite easy to uh, trigger and when you do, you get the whole experience. But sometimes when I focused on aspects of a treatment between that one month and three months, it's kind of like you treat the trauma memory, but then they might come back two weeks later and some other sensory modality related to the trauma, they're still symptomatic on. So they might still be kind of like hearing sounds, you know, that uh, are difficult for them. So that kind of thing. And that does dovetail with some of the research suggesting that the storage of the trauma memory in that one month to three month period is different to the post three month period. It's more disconnected. So that's kind of um, some of the interesting ideas. I think. Do you think there's something in the idea that the some of the sensory materials can take, I don't know, longer sometimes well, to settle? To settle or, or integrate into kind of like a single experience. Okay, that makes sense. So... I was wondering about this notion of simple versus complex trauma. What do you, what do you think about this idea of a simple trauma versus a complex T trauma? Yeah, I mean that's a tricky one. Um, I look, I think there's enough evidence to talk about it as separate entities. I have a lot of problems though, and I've written about this in a couple of places. The idea though that people that uh, would make criteria for complex uh, PTSD, 
the idea that maybe they wouldn't benefit from trauma processing because they're going to like drop out of treatment. So you should delay it because they're going to be overwhelmed by um, um, treatment and therefore not be able to benefit and perhaps increase their, their dissociation. We worry that our clients can't cope with trauma-focused uh, treatment or anything that processes the trauma because it will be too distressing for them, yet we forget that they live with this day in and day out, 24-7. I think a lot of us that see clients are scared about doing harm and don't want to do something that might increase their uh, distress, and that makes sense, that you would want to avoid that. The sort of people that we end up treating in the research study with PTSD from their childhood experiences only get into the study because they are living with it day in and day out. They're experiencing the trauma every single day. It's intruding into their thinking and it's distressing. So one of the things that we uh, want to test is can these people without any stabilisation actually benefit from a trauma approach? Now, what we did in, in the IRAM study is, IRAM standing for Imagery Rescripting and EMDR, is take 155 people with PTSD from childhood who met this uh, uh, criteria and start treating their trauma experiences basically in the second session. And people got 12 one-and-a-half-hour sessions. And we got amazing results because at the end of treatment, 60% no longer met criteria for PTSD uh, at the end of that time. And these are people, adults, with PTSD from childhood, and then eight weeks later, they improved more, and at one year follow-up, 80% no longer met criteria, diagnostic criteria for PTSD. So we were able to, to treat them without stabilisation, and interestingly, the qualitative analysis of the data showed that the therapists involved in the study had that, sort of reflected that second point that you were making, Lisa, is that when they were treating these patients, it's very clear they were very distressed by their trauma experiences and that anything that you're going to do was going to be a help. So the therapist felt really comfortable in kind of rolling up the sleeves and getting on with the trauma um, processing because it was necessary for reduced distress in these people's lives. I think it's more tricky if you have people with complex, some, some people would consider have complex trauma, you know, who present and kind of like say, well, they won't necessarily present with trauma. They'll present when you ask them, what is it you want help with? They say, I don't know. If you kind of like then do some inquiry about what's happening in their life, it's clear that, you know, uh, their relationships have been gone very badly. They have really low self-esteem. They find it really hard to regulate things in yeah, life. Yeah. Certain gestures of physical intimacy seem to trigger a dissociative response. And then if you ask them, were they sexually abused or physically abused, they'll say yes, but... I hardly ever think about it, and when I, I kind of like do, you know, I just go all quiet about it. So the interesting thing is those are people I would not dive in with a trauma-focused approach because they're not continually uh, necessarily experiencing the distress related to their trauma. And from a research point of view, technically they don't have PTSD either because if you're not thinking about it and feeling distressed, you don't make the criteria. Those people need a different approach to trauma-focused treatment. Very interesting. What approach do you think you would use with those clients? I think one of the things that you have, uh, there the relationship becomes really key to enable 
a scenario where you can have you need to spend longer creating a sense of safety, creating a connection, making vulnerability okay, and dealing with you know some of the dissociative uh, defenses so that they can sometimes uh, tolerate that. But even then, some of the times the work is is just done at that level without ever focusing on the trauma itself. Interesting. So the the stabilization phase seems um, maybe largely unnecessary for PTSD is that because that's a conventional wisdom isn't it that we need the stabilization phase uh, for trauma treatment but you're suggesting maybe there's two different groups here one that would meet the PTSD diagnosis that don't seem to need it you can get stuck in mm-hmm. and then the other group who mm-hmm. have more relationship issues self-esteem issues and you can't keep a job so forth and so on and for whom the relationship, the longer-term psychotherapy is, and the, is more important. I, I, and, I think so. And I think, um, you know, I'm not a great fan of the stabilisation, like after the IRM study, and even just the general uh, argument for stabilisation, like one of the ones that we critiqued in one of our articles was that, you know, they said people with trauma symptoms from childhood can't cope with trauma-focused treatment, they drop out. And then, you know, the average rate of dropout from trauma-focused treatment studies, including like prolonged exposures, about 17%. But the issue is people drop out at stab- of stabilisation at about the rate of 17%. So I'm, I'm not sure it's that they're not tolerating the treatment. It's really about, you know, the relationship and getting into the therapy that's the problem, not, not the content of it. And the other thing that I, I really strongly have moved to now and uh, is that um, for me, if someone has even a diagnosis of complex PTSD, which means you have to have the PTSD and the relationship difficulties and the self-image things, et cetera, that you're best off doing the trauma-focused treatment first, getting some dramatic symptom reduction, but that's not the end of the therapy for some people with that more complex form of PTSD. They then need like a rehabilitation process at the end of that because if they've so been so badly affected by their trauma for so long, they may have missed out on the relationship kind of like skills to make better connections with people. So you can take the PTSD away and you can improve the quality of life, but you might need another uh, 12 sessions on uh, the more rehabilitation side and, and using the therapy relationship there. Which sounds a little bit DBT-ish when they would treat the trauma first for using prolonged exposure or whatever and then move into the skills-based treatment. You know, I, I think that DBT has quite a prescribed hierarchy of when you get to PTSD symptoms. So my understanding is, you know, the first point is that you target anything that interferes with life expectancy. So you target suicidal and parasuicidal behaviours. And after that, you target the therapy interfering behaviours, the things that interfere with connection. After that, there's a targeting of um, skills or things that interfere with quality of life. And then Linehan would say it's only at the end of that where you target the uh, post-traumatic stress um, symptoms. What do you think about that approach? I think you miss out on having people experience a better quality of life earlier. Because I think the DBT approach is limited by basically sticking to prolonged exposure as the only treatment option for PTSD. And that clients with borderline personality disorder can tolerate 
uh, trauma-focused interventions are earlier, and particularly ones that um, might be a little more palatable, such as imagery restricting or uh, EMDR or even cognitive processing therapy. I agree. Is there any particular reason why prolonged exposure is um, a better fellow, if you like, with uh, DBT that you know of? Oh, I think it fits. You know, Linehan basically, although her book was called, you know, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for, for Borderline Personality Disorder or had that in the subtitle, Linehan's not a cognitive um, therapist. She's quite a strict behaviour therapist. So prolonged exposure is the best uh, match to her uh, personal preferences in terms of working in therapy. Um, so cognitive processing therapy or imagery scripting is less likely to be something that she would be drawn to, and I guess that has influenced the DBT community. Yeah, Chris, that makes a lot of sense. Let's pause the interview at this point. You've given us a lot to think about, and as we know, trauma is a big topic, and there's a great deal to cover. To our listeners, please listen in again next time. I've got some more questions to throw at Chris, and together we'll learn more about dealing with trauma. You can find Clinically Thinking on all the popular podcast platforms. If you've enjoyed the show by Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it if you take a moment to leave a favourable review. Reviews help other people find the show and tell new listeners what to expect. You can find more information about our guests or chat about the program at the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. Thanks for listening.